We've been going through the, the reign of Solomon, and much of this is review. If you were with us during First and Second Kings, there's um, a lot of this is review. But remember that the, the idea behind the book of Chronicles is a little bit different in scope than First and Second Kings. Uh, First Chronicles deals only really with the Judean kings, meaning the kings of Judah, and it uh, doesn't deal with the northern ten tribes at all. And it has more of a Levitical slant to it because uh, Ezra, we believe, is the chronicler, meaning the one who uh, compiled this information. Because remember, when the children of Israel, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, and they were taken captive into Babylon, uh, serving there uh, in captivity for 70 years, that after those 70 years, God brought them back into their land. And Ezra and Nehemiah came back uh, with a, 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 a subset of those who had gone into captivity. And these chronicles are really meant to encourage these captives who are now coming back into the land. Uh, to encourage them of their heritage, of their lineage, of the sweet uh, fellowship that Israel had had with God and also the Levitical uh, priesthood and, and the line of David specifically. And so that's what Chronicles is about. And I think you'll see when we get to the end of chapter 9, uh, I want to share something with you that'll make it a little more... Um, what I'm sharing with you more understandable because remember these were meant to encourage and to remind those from Judah who are now coming back into the land after their captivity just to remind them of their great heritage. So again we've been looking at Solomon and uh, let's just go ahead and begin in uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. Notice what it says. It says it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because Solomon, we know, uh, built the temple, and it tells us in 1 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, that it was, uh, it says, it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. So 480 years after the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. This would be 1446. We know that when they left Egypt, it was 1446 B.C., and they spent 40 years in the desert, and they came into the Promised Land after their 40-year desert wandering at 1406. So 1406 is when they came into the Promised Land. And it goes on here in 1 Kings 6, verse 1, it says, In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, and we know that Solomon uh, became king in um, 9, 970 B.C., and so this would be uh, in the year of 966 B.C. In the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I really like the, the fact that the Scripture is so um, clear and precise about certain things. And while the Bible doesn't tell us that it was 1406 or 1446 or 966, those dates can be devised fairly easy by other things that are happening in and, um, and it's very easy to uh, build a chronology. Um, I shouldn't say easy. There's main points that are uh, much easier. So it tells us here that he began building the temple in April or May of 966 B.C. And it was completed 
seven and a half years later, around October or November time frame of 959 B.C., and it tells us that in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, it says that in the 11th year, so now in the month of Bull, which is the 8th month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. And so he was seven years in building it, actually seven and a half. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. And so he finished all his house. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? It only takes seven and a half years to build the house of God, but you know, um, 13 more years it would take to build his own house and the different complexes around his palace. Um, But notice in verse 2 going on, it says that the cities of Hiram, um, uh, let me go back to verse 1 here. It says that it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the house, the Lord and his own house, that the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon Solomon built them, and he settled the children of Israel there. Now, there was a time when Solomon was, um, as he was building the temple, that in exchange for Cyprus and gold, um, Solomon gave to Hiram, this king of Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon. He gave him some cities in Galilee, and evidently the king uh, of Hiram, he really wasn't pleased with those cities. He called them Kabul, which means good for nothing. And, and so it appears that uh, these cities, which were really not really excitable to Hiram, king of Tyre, uh, evidently they came back to Solomon, and Solomon then colonized them with the Israelites. And this place that we're referring to, <clears throat> excuse me, um, let's see here. Uh, it says in verse 3, And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah, and he seized it. So Hamath Zobah is, is up here in the northern part of, of Israel, actually in north of Damascus, in what you and I would call modern-day Syria. And he also built Tadmor, and Tadmor is over here uh, on the upper northwest of Damascus. And uh, he built Tadmor in the wilderness, and all the storage cities which he built in uh, Hamath, and uh, but he bu- uh, he built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls and gates and bars. And why would they need to build cities with walls, gates, and bars? Because they're enemies, right? You and I, we don't have walls and gates and bars around our cities. We have police forces and things of that nature. But back in those days, they were always in threat of invading armies coming from different lands, and so. They would fortify those cities with walls and gates and bars to keep the enemies out. And also Baalath, uh, which was uh, a town located in Dan in the, in the northern part of Israel. And all the storage cities that Solomon had and all the chariot cities. Underline this in your Bible because I think there's a little bit of foreboding here, a little bit of foreshadowing here where it says chariot cities and the cities of the cavalry. Underline that phrase. Uh, chariot cities and the cities of the cavalry. And all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. And these chariot cities that are spoken of are not given here by, by name, but they are in First Kings chapter 9, verse 15. And some of those cities' names are Hazor, which is in the northern part of Israel, uh, Megiddo, which is over on the 
closer to the sea, uh, Mediterranean Sea, on the western side of Israel. And then Gezer, uh, that, that is another uh, chariot city. And Solomon, obviously, in setting up these chariot cities, he's doing what any military commander would do when you have a force of, of people around you that, are, that potentially you've had problems with in the past. And certainly David had problems in the past. But God had given Solomon 40 years of peace. There wasn't a single war during Solomon's reign. But Solomon, nonetheless, uh, built these places, had chariot cities filled with horses, and naturally he would do this to strengthen his domain. And that's any, any king would do that uh, normally. Uh, but we see here in verse 6, I believe, the beginning of Solomon's disobedience. And this is a, a refrain or a theme that you're not going to find a whole lot in Chronicles, okay? In Kings, you will. Uh, in Kings, exploits all of uh, Solomon's faults. And, and we'll look at that toward the end of the night briefly. Um, well, I'll just say it now. In chapter 11 of 1 Kings, it chronicles his downfall. But here in Chronicles, uh, the chronicler, who we believe may be Ezra, doesn't want to discourage the people. He just kind of gets to the point and just overlooks these flaws of Solomon. Um, but you can see here in verse 6 that there's something is starting to slip. And you know, there, there is something in our walk uh, that I think is interesting. You know, when we first get saved, maybe, maybe it's been some time since you've given your heart to the Lord. And isn't it true, uh, for, for, for some people, not everyone, as time goes on, some of your old sins, uh, some of the things that you flirted with in your past, maybe, maybe it was some habitual thing that you did in the past, and you thought you kicked it, and for maybe many years you never looked upon it. God gave you the victory to turn away from it, and then all of a sudden, do you ever notice that those things are always nipping at your heels at times? God gives you grace sometimes in your walk where you're not even aware that it's there. And there are other times where you sense the presence of that thing that is just trying to gain its foothold again in your life. Does, does that make sense? And I think that's what was happening here to Solomon. God had given him so much. And he had peace. He had abundance of wealth. And he had great, great authority. There was probably no one greater in the world than Solomon. And he was certainly the wealthiest man in all the world. Even to this day, he makes um, you know, uh, Elon Musk and Bill Gates and um, everyone else, you know, Jeff Bezos, if they had the kind of money that uh, Solomon had and the kind of gold and the wealth But we see here him, and that's why I had you underline that phrase, because we see this hint of something is not quite right here. Something is not quite right here. Because he's not only amassing these horses and chariots, but we know from other scriptures that he actually sold them to nations to the north of Israel. And specifically, what do I mean? And what does the Bible have to say about this? Um, In your margin of your Bible, write this in the margin. uh, uh, Deuteronomy 17. Uh, beginning in verse 14. And let me read it to you. This is why it's a problem. Because back before the children of Israel came into the promised land, remember in 1406 B.C., as they are standing there, amassed on the eastern coast of the, of the Jordan River, before they crossed over, God gave to Moses this reiteration of the second law. It's really just a second iteration of the law. And what did he tell them in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17? He says, when you come 
to the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And certainly they did, right? They started with Saul, who was a horrible failure. And then God chose David, and then David had his 70 years, or 40 years on the throne, uh, but he died at 70 years of age. And then his son Solomon now is reigning, and 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 he says, when you come into the land and you say that you want a king, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, and God chose David, and God certainly chose Solomon. He says, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not, notice this, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. And this is exactly what Solomon was doing. And so when we see him building these chariot cities and having these horses and stables, and if you go to Megiddo with us, if you go to Israel, we visit one of those chariot cities in, in, in Megiddo. And in the tell, in the mountain, where there's a bunch of cities that are in layers, they, they've dug down to that time period, and you can actually see the stables that Solomon had. You can see them. They're there. I've seen them. I've walked through the stalls. And they're there to this day. But God says, You shall not multiply horses for yourself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, You shall not return that way again. Now why would God say, Don't do this? Well, for the very simple fact that, isn't it true that the more nuclear weapons you have, the more bombs, the more carriers and planes and armaments and guns... What do you typically do? You rely on those things and you rely less upon God because after all, we got the planes, we got the trains and you know, we got everything to you know, go after the enemy. We don't need God. We got all the armament now. right? And that is something that God never wanted the children of Israel to slip from their mind. He always wanted to be the one who was their deliverer. And he would have fought for, them all, for all their battles. If they would have just stayed true to the Lord, he would have protected them and given them victory over their enemies time and time again. Even the Philistines who had the iron chariots and the big horses, God would have given them. And, and, and I don't blame them so much because I see so much of myself in this. Do you? You know, we, we, you see like you're outnumbered and the, and the natural inclination is, well, I need a bigger, I need a bigger gun. I need, a bigger, I need a bigger tank. They've got chariots. I need a tank. And it's very easy in the natural to think that way. And yet God is saying, are you going to trust me or are you going to trust your, your abilities, your armaments? And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for anybody. But God wanted Israel to learn that lesson. And didn't he teach them in the desert? how they could rely upon him? Did he not feed some 200 and, you know, or 2.1 million people, feeding them every day in the desert? Try doing that sometime. Try, try getting Chick-fil-A to come out and deliver out in the middle of the desert for 2.1 million people and water in the desert. And yet he provided for them. And so we become more reliant upon the flesh and what we can do. That's why it's a problem. So verse 7, it says, All the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, who are not of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy, from these Solomon raised forced labor. Do you hear that? 
he put into forced labor. They were basically slaves, these, these people groups. Remember, when God had brought them into the promised land, he told them to wipe this group of people out, these specific groups of people. And why? Because God, God, these people were completely engaged in idolatry. They were sacrificing their kids. They were doing all kinds of lewd things. And God gave them many years to repent, hundreds of years to repent. But there came a time when God would drop the hammer. Because God cannot look upon sin forever. He, he must judge sin. And aren't you glad tonight that your sin has been judged once and for all upon Christ? You won't be judged for your sin if you're a Christian. But those who have not given their heart to Christ, they will be judged for their sin. And these people were going to be these, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites. They were going to be judged for their sin. God had given them time. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, this is what God says to them. Again, he says, But of the cities of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, in other words, when you come into the land, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. And that is a very hard thing for people to understand. It's easy for us to understand the love of God. Oh, God loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, he does. He's a great God of love. He loves, but he is also a God who judges sin. And he's not going to um, overlook it and pretend like it didn't happen. As parents, we often do that. When we see our son or daughter doing something, instead of disciplining them, we just kind of wink at them because we don't want to have the fuss in the, in the, in the marketplace because you don't want to melt down. There's many reasons why parents don't discipline their kids. I mean, who likes to do it anyway? But there comes a point where you have to discipline your child. And God disciplines his children. And he disciplines those who are disobedient, and especially those who are in gross error and will not repent. And that's these people. And he says, but you shall utterly destroy them, verse 17, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, aren't these people the same people that we just read about? Because the Israelites didn't completely eradicate this, these groups of people when they came into the promised land, they lingered and they grew up with the people and now they're serving their gods, now they're giving their kids and their daughters to marry their daughters and their sons to their... And so they're intermingling like this and now Solomon is dealing with this again. But instead of eradicating them, which he should have done, maybe as, as, as a king he should have just said, you know what, we're going to finish the job that our ancestors didn't do. And I think God would have been with him. But instead, he does what a good politician does. <laughs> he puts them to labor, puts them to work, forced labor. But Solomon, verse 9, back in our text, did not make the children of Israel servants for his work, some were men of war, captains of his officers, captains of his chariots, and his cavalry, underline that. Should he have had a cavalry anyway? It was the most peaceful time in Israel's history. It was this time. There was probably not a time, and I've said this before, that where they've had this long of a time without any incident. It was the golden moment. It was the golden era. And again, not to be too hard on Solomon, because you know what, I, I, I think of that God gave him such great wisdom, and you know, the truth of the matter is, if we're not abiding in Christ, true? 
If we're not abiding in Christ, we can go the way. We can make mistakes and we can fall into sin and rebellion. And that's why the Bible tells us so much to crucify these old members in our flesh and to, uh, to take off these things, to put off the old man and put on the new man, which is Christ. That's why we're exhorted to do that. And there is consequences, right? There's ramifications for these things that we do. And now Solomon's having to deal with these people. And instead of destroying them, he puts them into forced labor. So I guess they worked out somehow. But it wasn't, I don't believe it was God's perfect will. So Solomon didn't make the children of Israel servants for his work, and some were men of war, captains and officers, captains of his chariots and his cavalry. He wasn't allowed to make the children of Israel slaves or to put them into forced labor. It tells us in Leviticus 25, verse 39, it says, And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor, and he sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you, and he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. You're going to pay him. He's going to be a hired servant, but you're not going to put him to forced labor like they did these Canaanites that should have been destroyed years prior to this. Verse 10, it says, And others were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. Now, you may notice in your Bibles there is a parallel account of this, and it's in 1 Kings chapter 9. And and not to confuse anybody here or to stumble you in any way, um, you're going to find some different numbers. You know, like right here it says 250 who ruled over the people, some of these captains. But in 1 Kings 9.23 of this same, this parallel passage, it mentions that there's 550. So again, a a scribal error, and um, and don't let this throw you again, because Hebrew, in in Hebrew, numbers can be tricky depending on the clarity of the manuscript. See, you and I, we, you know, if if there's a character and there's a dot over it, that changes it from like 5 to 50, or uh, depending on another dot, it could be 500. And with the absence of those things, or if the manuscript gets dulled or marred in any way, it's very easy to uh, mistranscribe numbers, okay? Letters are a little harder to do, but numbers are very easy to, to goof up. Uh, in a, in a, in when, they're, when they're transcribing these things. So don't be discouraged when you see these kinds of numbers kind of uh, uh, twisted around a little bit because it doesn't really affect doctrine at all. Okay, so it's, it's really not that huge of a deal. So notice Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her. For he said, notice what Solomon said. He says, my wife shall not dwell in the house of King David of Israel Because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. That's interesting, isn't it? So what is he really saying? It seems that by this last phrase that Solomon was admitting that his Gentile wife was not to be where the ark had been. It's almost as if he knew that his marriage to her was forbidden. Because it was. He shouldn't have been marrying Pharaoh's wife or Pharaoh's daughter. And it seems that by this admission also, he knew that um, it was not God's will. And it may have been a politically expedient for him to do so, because kings would often take daughters of other kings as wife into their harem, and it would create this kind of 
this peace between uh, countries. Because if Solomon has the king of Egypt's daughter in his own house, in his own palace, it creates this kind of warm and fuzzy feeling with the king of Egypt and he's less likely to come after and send his armies when his daughter is there. And so they do these kinds of things back at this time all the time. And so we see Solomon here again just kind of drifting. He had no business marrying Pharaoh's daughter. He, I'm, I'm confident that if he had just stayed true and married a good Jewish girl, God would have still blessed the relationship with him in Egypt. And he still would have saw peace during his time. But the ends never justify the means, right? He's trying to seek this peace, but what are the means that he uses to do it? Well, he's being disobedient to God. Is it really worth it? Is your, is your sin, is, is something that you do, to, the, the means, does it justify the ends? No, it doesn't. In Deuteronomy 7, God warned the children of Israel not to take foreign wives. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, and again, he lists the names, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. And see, that is another thing that's kind of disturbing too. But mercy is something that God gives to those who he deems it. And there is a point when rebellion goes on so long when God says oh, that, that, that enough's enough. And judgment is on its way. He told that to Jeremiah when the, the people of, of Judah were crying and everything when they knew that uh, Babylon was coming after them. And Jeremiah wanted to pray for the people, and God says, in two, on two occasions, and uh, I think it's in Jeremiah 7 and in Jeremiah 14, both of those chapters, God says, Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. Isn't that crazy? You know it's bad when God says, don't pray. <laughs> when he says, don't pray for this people, it's because judgment's coming, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And that's disturbing, isn't it? But see, remember, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice, and he's a God of war. And I love this part about God, and I'm so glad because I'll never see that part of God. And if you're a believer, you won't see that part of God either. But remember that there's coming a time, yet future to us, in the tribulation period, that God's wrath is going to be poured out. And people are going to be gnawing on their tongue in pain for the things that are coming upon the world. And they'll still raise their hand in defiance against God. Can you believe that? Many will be saved. It'll cost them their life. But the others will be completely sold over to the devil, the Antichrist, and they'll raise their fist in defiance. And there's no hope for them. And that's a really sad thing, isn't it? But notice, he, in, in Deuteronomy 7, he says, When the Lord God delivers them, and you shall utterly destroy them, you shall make no covenant with them, nor show them mercy, nor shall you make marriages with them. Now, obviously, Egypt was not one of these nations that are mentioned here, but it is a Gentile bride that he's taking and Solomon shouldn't have done it. He says, you shall not make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. Why? And here's the reason. And here's the grace, the wonderful grace of God. Why is it that he does? Is it because he's a bigot? Is it because God's a bigot? And he's like, 
you know, you're Jews, you can't touch anybody else. Is it because he's bigoted? No. The media today would say God is a bigot, but here's the reason. Read a little further, and it tells us why. Here's the reason. (laughs) For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against them and destroy you suddenly. There's the reason. It's a very good reason, too. Do you notice it doesn't have any reason because of their skin color, because of their race? God, God doesn't see things like that. Unfortunately, we in America and other parts of the world, we do, and we, we ought not to. Racism on any level is horrible. It should be eradicated on every level, including anti-Semitism. Notice that all of the, uh, the kingdoms of the world right now don't seem to have a problem with anti-Semitism. Isn't that crazy? Any other people group, they wouldn't raise a stink about. But the Jews, everybody hates the Jews. And why is that? It's because God says they're my people. And whom God says are his people, you can better believe it. The devil's going to come after them. And he has. And they've never seen relief. They've never seen relief. They are always looked at a bad light. I remember uh, yesterday I was looking at some 1945 propaganda from World War II in Nazi Germany and seeing these pictures that were posted up and they're, they're, they're scanned and, and, you know, on the internet and you can see these things. And it's just horrible the way that they portrayed the Jew. They had these characteristics about them and they would accentuate those things and they would call them horrible things and they would always make them look like little creepy little animals and, and, and everybody would look at them and go, oh, we hate them, we hate them. And they did that so much that everybody did hate them. And the, Germany hated the Jews. Because um, Hitler was a, a, a fanatical, evil genius. He put up in front of those pictures all over, so much, so much, so much, all these pictures, and constantly berated, this is the reason why we're having these problems, because of them. And what, it's very easy then for the people to say, yeah, they, they need to go. And the program worked, and they exterminated six million Jews threw them into ovens in Auschwitz, gassed them, and then bulldozed them into mass graves. But this is why. God is not bigoted. It's all about sin. And when God is saying this, he's obviously not wasting his time because this is exactly what happened to Solomon. And again, you can read 1 Kings chapter 11. Chronicles doesn't mention it because it's not going to mention this stain of Solomon, because remember Ezra wanted to encourage the people. He wanted to kind of brush under the rug. Not that it wasn't true. Everybody knew it was true, but he wanted to encourage them in their heritage of, 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 of Judah and uh, the reign of David and ultimately the Messiah coming through that, through that reign, through that line. But if he had only heeded the voice of the Lord, things would have been much better for Israel. If Solomon had only listened even his family line. And many people think that their, um, their sin and disobedience is something that only affects them. But the truth of the matter is, isn't it true that it spreads, sin spreads like wildfire. Acts of sin and disobedience, they have consequences. Not just immediate consequences, but sometimes far-reaching consequences. We're looking at one right now. Solomon put these people under forced labor and they should have been eradicated years ago. Years ago, years ago, they shouldn't even have had them to force them to labor, to force them into labor. They shouldn't even have been there. 
And it's going to create problems for them. And it will continue to keep problems for them. In fact, do you know that that's one of the reasons why they still stayed in the land, these people groups that they should have destroyed. They continued to intermingle and they served their gods. And what, why was the reason why the northern ten tribes got led away to Syria in captivity? Because of their idolatry. Why did the Judah in, 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 in Jerusalem, why did that get taken away? Why did they get taken away to Babylon? Because of their sin of idolatry. They didn't learn anything. Reminds me of America. Verse 12, it says, Then Solomon, back in our text, it says, Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the vestibule, according to the daily rate, offering according to the commandment, of Moses for Sabbath, the new moons, the three appointed yearly feasts, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, and the feast of tabernacles. And we know that there were three feasts that all Jewish males were to attend to every year. They were supposed to go to Jerusalem for that purpose. In Exodus 23, it tells us that, uh, it says three times in a year, verse 14 of Exodus 23, you shall keep a feast to me in the year three times. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, which is their first month. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the, fe- the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in a year all your males shall come before the Lord. So... These three feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, are really uh, Passover. When we think of Passover, Passover is the very first thing that's done in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, some people called it Passover, some people call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it always began with the sacrificing of the lamb and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you follow? And there came a point where they just called it the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it certainly um, had the Passover um, meal in the very beginning, and then the following day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Does that make sense? So um, in the Gospels, you'll hear it called the Passover. Sometimes it's just called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but they're really together. But Passover was the, the slaughter of the lamb and the bitter herbs and all of that were, were eaten on the first day of that Feast of Unleavened Bread, okay? And, um, and also the Feast of Harvest. It's also called the Feast of Firstfruits or the Feast of Weeks. We know it as Pentecost. All these names are one and the same. And the Feast of Ingathering is really the Feast of Tabernacles. And so these names have different uh, names in the Bible, but they're one and the same. But those three they were to go to. But notice in verse 14 of our text, And according to the order of David his father, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service, the Levites for their duties to praise and serve before the priests, as the duty of each day required, and the gatekeepers by their divisions of each gate. For so David the man of God had commanded And remember that it was under David's reign that music became a central part of their worship service. So back in the Mosaic Law, they sacrificed the animals, but music really wasn't a central figure or very prominent at all. It was basically just a sacrifice. But during David's time, he invented instruments, and really from David onward, music became to work in conjunction with the sacrifices 
And um, what a greater man to do that than David, the, the young man who was out in the fields watching his dad's sheep, you know, learning to worship the Lord out there as he looked up at the stars and, and sang as he had his guitar out there in the field, you know, and just enjoying himself. A man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And I love at the end of this phrase where it says, So David, the man of God, had commanded. Don't you love the grace of God there? You know, as we've looked over David's life, we've spent a lot of time talking about David in the past. And just to, for the Holy Spirit to call, him, um, to call him a man of God. David, the man of God. This is encouraging me because we see the heart and the nature of Almighty God who has forgiven us of all of our sins just as he has forgive, forgiven David for the things that he did wrong. And he did some pretty horrible things. I don't know if anybody's murdered somebody physically in this room. Don't raise hands, because we'll probably look on you a little weird. But probably none of us have killed anybody physically. We do it with our, in our heart and in our, with our eyes, but there's probably none of us here that physically killed somebody. And there's probably fewer you know, um, people that have you know, um, you know, cheated on somebody's wife that that may be more probable in our culture back before we came to Christ. But, you know, you put those things together, and David, he did some pretty horrible things, and yet God called him a man of God. The man of God, because God forgave him, and God forgives you. Isn't that wonderful to think about? He calls you a son or a daughter of God. Isn't that wonderful? That you don't have to worry even those things of your past that, that are haunting you, or maybe you haven't given them completely over. Maybe they're in your, the back of your memory and you're still wondering, did God really forgive me? Hey, listen, you got to let that go. And, and do it tonight. Don't wait another day. Things that you've done in the past, you need to put that under the blood this very night and forget about it. Because the power of the blood of Christ is able to forgive you for that sin. And you have to believe that. It's important that you do, and you honor God when you do this. Because you're basically saying, I can't do it. I can't, I can't make myself feel better. I can't atone for my own sin that I've done, this horrible thing from my past. I can't do it. And God's saying, you don't have to. I've done it for you. Will you believe it? And then the impetus is on me, isn't it? The onus is on me. What am I going to do? Am I going to believe God or am I going to say, no, i got to somehow pay for it? No, God has paid for it. You just need to confess it. and He is faithful to forgive, right? And it's encouraging me also because it tells us of God's nature and that he tells us that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Isn't that crazy? Even right now, uh, mystically in a sense, spiritually, you and I, God sees us perfected in Christ in heavenly places. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians? But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we, even when we were dead in trespasses, <clears throat> excuse me, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? He sees us seated in heavenly places. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He sees us perfected in him. We don't see that. I don't view myself as being seated in, with Christ in heavenly places because of my sin. And, and I, I'm aware of my limitations 
And maybe you are too, but God sees you already perfected. Even amidst your mess that you're in right now, even amidst the struggles that you're going through right now, he already sees you covered in the blood and at his right hand. I don't know about you, but that kind of grace makes you love him all the more, doesn't it? It makes me want to serve him more. It makes me want to spend more time with him. I want to get to know this God, this one who did this for me. I could never deserve it. And that's how much he loves. And notice verse 15 back in our text. They did not depart from the command of the king to the priests, the Levites, concerning any matter of concerning the treasuries. Now all the work that Solomon was, uh, all the work of Solomon was well ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. And so the house of the Lord was completed What an amazing thing. Can you imagine the release of that? Of building this beautiful structure. Do you have any idea the amount of gold that went into this? It's no wonder that the enemies of of Israel, the enemies of God, when they would come and they would tear this temple down in 586, they would would actually, um, and and even Solomon's temple, or, or even Herod's temple later on, they, 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 would, they, would, they would push the rocks aside to find the gold between the rocks. And that's one of the reasons why they pushed the rocks off the edge that are still there today. I got pictures of me sit, sit, standing on, on a group of them in 70 AD when they did that. But can you imagine the gold, the billions of dollars worth of gold in the temple? It wasn't like it was gold. It was good gold. All the work that Solomon did was well ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was completed. So the house of the Lord was completed. I love what it says in Corinthians 14, verse 33. It says, For God, he's not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, it says, Let all things be done decently and in order. And see, when the Holy Spirit of God is at work, there is peace and there's order. And when the Spirit of God is absent, there is often chaos and strife. But it is also true that sometimes when God's work is commencing, when you're actually doing God's will, led by the Spirit of God, that there, is, there can often be spiritual attack and difficulties and setbacks. Have you experienced spiritual warfare? Do you know it's very real? Now, sometimes in my life, I've noticed that sometimes God allows me to sail by something. Something really heavy is going on, and and I'm completely oblivious to it. And I'm just sailing through on on, on waters that are just like glass. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And then God did something really fantastic, and I was completely oblivious. And then there are other times where you really feel it. You feel like you're with him and the disciples out in the middle of the Galilee when the storm comes up and the waves are raging as the wind comes through that that top of the Galilee in between those mountain ranges and it comes down there and it just turns that water over like nothing and you feel like you're going to die out in that boat. And there are times in life like that too when you're in the middle of God's will and everything is against you. You can't even see straight. The spiritual attack and the warfare is so thick you can almost taste it. Have you ever experienced that kind of warfare where you felt like, and it's, it's pretty heavy, 
There's a handful, there's some times where I felt that, and other times I've just been sailing like a happy-go-lucky kid who didn't know that, you know, I just, you know, 747 just missed my head about that far, you know, and I'm like, oh, what was that? I felt that breeze, and the Lord's going, oh. Didn't even hear it, Rob? You didn't even hear the jet engines? And I didn't, whatever, you know. But there are times when it's like that. Because what does Paul tell us in Ephesians? He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We see it in the church, as well as things and events that we see going on in the world right now. Do you know there's a battle of good and evil right now going on all around us? Everybody knows it. It's between a worldly and biblical worldview. Do you know that's what's happening? In our country right now, there is a battle of worldviews. There is a conservative biblical worldview, and then there is a global liberal worldview. And right now, those two worldviews are at enmity with one another. And, and that's why we see the things going on. That's why things are in such an uproar. Because there is a collision of these two worldviews. And it's times like this, loved ones, <laughs> that we need to cry out to God. And say, Lord, help me not to get up, caught up in this mess. And I have been, I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to lie. You know this. <laughs> But I believe that for every physical act, there is a spiritual root or a catalyst. Right? Solomon was doing this house and, you know, he was um, prospering. And things were well ordered because it was led by the Lord. But when things aren't led by the Lord and people are led by a different spirit, different things happen. And again, we're seeing this. Let me give you an example of how this can look like. You know, there's a young man who's angry because he hasn't gotten fair treatment at the workplace. He shows up late often, and he does work that's very subpar, and he gets passed over for promotions that come out, and his anger continues until it sees from inside of him, and now it comes out of him, and he reacts with violence. So there's, there's a spiritual thing happening inside of him that becomes physical, and see, I believe that everything that we see in the world is, is a result of something spiritual that's, making, that's pushing you, you know. Are you led by the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Antichrist? Are you led by the Spirit or are you led by the flesh? And Solomon was led by the Spirit in this endeavor. And here's the reality of that young man who felt jilted. He, remember, he showed up late every day. He did work that was subpar, but still he thinks that he deserves something better. So he gets angry, and over weeks and months, his anger starts to build. Then he comes in and does some violent act. Well, the reality is the man was lazy, and he was focused on himself. And he didn't have a relationship with Christ or through the Word of God. He didn't examine his own heart. He, did, um, he dwelt on what he thought was unfair to the point that it infected him and it grew like a cancer. And Satan and this own young man's own fallen nature encouraged this attitude to fester until it manifested itself in a physical action. And see, that's what adultery is like too. Men, 
If you're looking at things, it's only a matter of time before you start acting on those things. That's how sin works. It's how drug abuse works. First it's sniffing the glue, and then it's, then it's the joint, and then the joint is not good enough. Then you've got to do cocaine, and then you've got to freebase. Then you've got to take acid, and then you're doing heroin. And then you're dead. That's how it works. It starts off in the spiritual realm, and it develops And pretty soon it becomes something physical. And that's the way it works. But Solomon's work was birthed by the Spirit and was a blessing. In the example of the disgruntled young man, he was was birthed in the flesh and encouraged by Satan and resulted in violence and death. And so what's the point in this whole thing, in the order of, of God Live life in obedience to the Lord and reap the blessings of obedience. There's really no way around it, and it's a wonderful thing that God gives to us, but it requires us to do something too, right? We have to obey God, because if I obey God, I'm basically putting myself under his umbrella of protection. But as soon as I step out and do things in my own desire, my own will, in my flesh, I put myself out from underneath his protection, and I'm a sitting duck. And the enemy has got great aim, and he's going to shoot you. (laughs) And he's going to shoot you again and again and again, as long as you continue to walk in disobedience. And God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that for me. He wants my life to be a blessing. He wants your life to be a blessing. And all I have to do It seems so simple, doesn't it? And yet our flesh can rebel so much because there are things in us that just want what it wants, you know? It's like that feeling you get when you have to have a cheeseburger. Can anybody relate to that? Every now and then you have to go to McDonald's. I don't care who you are. Every now and then, once in the blue moon, you may not have had a Big Mac in like a year and all of a sudden you're like, I gotta have that now, right? Anybody have that feeling? Am I the only one? Okay, I guess I'm the only fool in the room. Okay, okay, great, thanks. I feel better inside. But we got this old nature that is just a rascal. It's a rascal, and it just wants to be fed, and we have to crucify it. Solomon wasn't doing that enough, and we see these things developing, and we have to be very careful, folks. Be very careful. Let the, the lessons of Solomon's life really take root, because God told him, you know, Solomon, what is it that you want? Remember, he gave, he gave Solomon a blank check. He met with him one night, and he says, Solomon, whatever you want, I'll give to you. What is it that you want? And Solomon says, you know what, Lord, I am so young. I'm just a young man, and I've inherited this, all of this. My, my father gave all of this gold, he, the blueprint, everything. He, all the servants are here. I didn't have to do anything but ascend to the throne. I don't know how to do any of this. I need your help. How to, how to judge this great people of yours. How to do all of that. Lord, I need you. And he's like, oh, Solomon. You could have asked for anything, and that's what you asked for? Well, let me tell you. I'm going to give you wisdom on how to judge my people, how to do the right things. I'm going to give you wisdom and make you the wise. There'll be nobody wise like you, ever. There'll be nobody as wise as you, except for Christ, of course. No one like you, ever. There'll be, there's never anyone before you and there'll never be anyone after you as wise as I'm going to make you. And yet, in all of that, and, and I'm going to give you the things that you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you all the wealth and the riches. 
because, and, and you didn't want the, the life of your enemies. You just wanted wisdom and how to judge rightly. And boy, that just touched the heart of God. And I believe it touches his heart too when we come to him and we say similar things. We're like, Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't, want, I don't necessarily need to be wealthy. You know, I, I, I like that one psalm where the, the psalmist says, Lord, don't make me so wealthy that I get, I get high and mighty and I forget who you are. But don't let me be so poor that I end up begging and, and stealing for my food. Help me be somewhere in the middle. And you know what? I enjoy being in that place. I don't need the, you know, the lotto jackpot, you know, where you get 435 million after taxes. I don't need that. I mean, it'd be kind of fun to see what I, I but I think it would probably destroy me, to be honest with you. I don't think it'd be good for me at all. I, I like right where I'm at because the Lord is, I'm not like that by any means, and I'm certainly not begging for food. I'm just satisfied. And there's something about that. So live life in obedience to the Lord and reap the blessings of obedience. Yes, the blessings of obedience. In verse 17, we're getting close here to the end and we're only going to do this chapter. We'll do the other one next week. But in verse 17 it says, Then Solomon went to Ezion-Geber and Elath on the seacoast in the land of Edom. Now, if you see a map of the Sinai Peninsula, you notice it's kind of shaped like a V. And the Red Sea is all of this, this area. And this, uh, or this body of water to the right of the Sinai Peninsula is the Gulf of Aqaba. And Ezion-Geber and Elat. Elat is actually a resort town to this day. It's where all the people from Europe go um, when they want to have a holiday, they go to Elat. They go to this place right up here in the corner in the top northern part of the Sea of Aqaba. Very beautiful place. And right next to that, not too far away, is this place called Ezion Geber. And this is where Solomon uh, sent or went to there in the land of Edom. And, and Hiram, king of Tyre, and this is the king of Tyre, modern day Lebanon. And Hiram sent him ships by the hand of his servants and servants who knew the sea. And they went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir and acquired 450 talents of gold. 450 talents of gold and brought it to Solomon. So this area down here, uh, right down to the lower part of the Sinai Peninsula in the southern part, there's a little place down here, right at uh, the southern part called Ophir. And this is right on the right opposite of Sheba, and we'll look at that next week. But Sheba, uh, the queen of Sheba, came from this area right over here. In fact, this area today is called Yemen, and these are the people from Yemen are the Houthis. These are the ones that are attacking the oil ships in the um, in the in the Gulf right now. They're 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 terrorists, and they're attacking the ships. And so, but this place down here is this place of Ophir. This is where Solomon would come and get gold and, uh, and bring it back. And 450 talents of gold. Do you know how much that is? Let me, I actually did, a, I love doing stuff like this. Um, it's about 17 tons of gold. So it's about 34,000 pounds of gold as of yesterday, actually two days ago. 
Gold was $2,040 an ounce. You do the math and it comes out to this. $1,109,760,000. That's how much that gold that he got just on that one trip. Ah, it's pocket change. No big deal. It's a lot of money, isn't it? It's a lot of money. And we're going to see that um, God blessed Solomon with wealth, but I think there came a point, where, you know, in Deuteronomy it told us that uh, a king shouldn't amass these things for himself either. And I wonder, and this is just my own thought about this, not a, wouldn't want to build anything on this, just a thought of mine, is I wonder, you know, God gave to Solomon so much, and I wonder when was it enough? You know, I wonder, because we're going to see next week that he also, the gold that came into him every year was 666 talents of gold, which is 35 and a half tons, something like that, of gold. Well, how much is enough? And he wasn't supposed to amass those things for himself. I mean, God was, you know, where was the line? I mean, God maybe didn't tell him that line, but... If you find yourself kind of getting greedy and you know, God gives you something and he, he just lets you have this rope, as much rope as you want, and you're wondering, uh, I don't think I should go that far because I don't think it's good for me. Because <laughs> your heart starts to change and your heart starts to become dependent. You, things start to happen in the heart of a person when they're given that kind of wealth. And I almost wonder, again, just my own thought about this, Maybe there was a point where God says, you know, Solomon, this is what really what I was talking about, but now you're, you're really going for it, aren't you? <laughs> is it going to work out for you? Are you going to be able to handle it? See, God can give things to us, and that's why you know, we can't look upon rich people and think, well, God is going to be angry with them because they're rich, and they must be greedy because they're rich. You know what? That's not true. Some of the, the poorest people are some of the rotten people. And there's also very rich people who are rotten people too. And there's also very wealthy people who are the kindest, most giving people. And I've known them. And they're amazing people. They're, they're, they don't just give money out. They're very careful. They're shrewd about their thing. They pray about things. And when God says, I want you to do this, they do it. And it's very simple. And God continues to bless them. And there are other people who are so tight with their money, they squeak when they walk. And there are some people who don't make that much that would never give a dime to anything. So we, we can never look upon those things and, and judge people, right? God certainly doesn't. Because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were all wealthy men. And God didn't have a problem with their wealth. And it didn't go to their head. Abraham was a very wealthy man. But you don't see him acting in a, in a, in a poor way. He was a giving man. He was a faithful man. And see, that's the thing. With whatever you do, in all that you do, give glory to God, right? That's the thing. And so let's do that. Let's give glory to God and whatever he has given us, whatever he's blessed us with. Just give him thanks. Give him glory. He may not require you to give anything, but when he does, are you willing? And whatever it is, it could be to somebody else. Maybe you've got a spare car and you know somebody, there's somebody in, your, in the fellowship who doesn't have a lot of money and they're really struggling. A single mom who's got a bunch of kids and doesn't have a very good husband. The husband ran out on her and she's poor and you've got an extra car and it's just sitting there doing nothing. 
and the Lord puts it on your heart, just give it to her. Just sign the title over to her. Are we willing to do that kind of thing? Our attitude is so important in all of this. But let's stand and let's pray. And uh, next week we'll look at uh, chapter 9 and uh, possibly get into chapter 10 as well. So, Father, we just thank you again for this uh, chapter. And, Lord, the warnings are obvious to us, Lord, as we look at the, the life of Solomon. And we just see these uh, undertones. These Actually, they're not, they're not even so much undertones. They're, they're, they're very, uh, we can underline them in the Scripture and see what your Word has said about them, the warnings. And, Lord, help us to be a people, too, that, uh, Lord, as we go about our daily lives, that we would remember the Scriptures. That it wouldn't just be theory in our head. It wouldn't just be something we learn and hear about. That we'd put these things in the, in the, in the in motion and incorporate them into our lives. So have your way with us, Lord, and, and do that deep work in us, Lord, tonight. And get us all home safe tonight, Lord. We thank you for uh, just being together like this, Lord. What a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Jesus loves you.